Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week we're diving inside the working day of Lucienne Boyce. Uh, she's a historical fiction author, writing at the moment in the 18th century. She's also in the process of writing a biography, so we'll talk about the research of that and what actually compelled her to do it, to spend so much time in someone else's life. Uh, we also talk about her brand new book, Death Makes No Distinction, and we talk about the process of telling historical fiction. Does it always need to be accurate? For me, it's more to do with the craft, because if you get it wrong, what you do is spoil the story. You pull the reader out. So if you have a character who suddenly says something like, well, okay, says, hello, no, that's just not, you know, the reader will think, whoa, no, where am I? Suddenly I'm not in the 18th century. Um, and I think it's, it's more for me about getting it, I do really, I do such a lot of research and it really is important to me and no one likes to be caught out in a mistake either. But, you know, I, I can't be doing with the sort of people who, you know, sometimes you say, oh my goodness, you know, someone's written this really fantastic book, but I couldn't finish it because they've got the number of the bus going to the Elephant Castle wrong. And I'm thinking, well, oh, that's rather harsh, you know. Loads more on the way with Lucienne Boyce and a chance for you to save some cash on really what I think is the greatest writing software around on this week's Writer's Routine. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Yes, welcome along. My name's Dan Simpson. This is Writer's Routine, the show that has a look uh, at the scheduling secrets of some of the world's best authors. Now, I'll grant you, if you're new around here, it does sound a little dry. Scheduling secrets, I promise, uh, it goes much deeper than that. We start off with where they work, then we have a look at their day, the meticulousness of it, all the intricacies of their day, how they uh, create and plan, and then plot, and then publish, fingers crossed, a bestseller. Now, we'll get into it with Lucienne in just a sec. First, I want to remind you, for the next few weeks, for the month of April, we are supported by Scrivener, uh, and we've managed to sort you out with a discount for, really, honestly, what I think is the best writing software around. If you've listened to the show for a while, you'll have heard all about it. So many of our authors have told about the brilliance of Scrivener. Uh, Nell Patterson last week, she did it as well. I hope you took advantage of the, the offer after you heard that. It's a brilliant tool. It lets you plan and plot and move and brilliantly research the way that you write. It's got a virtual pinboard on there with colour charts and tags so you can keep track of all the characters and the stories. You never need to be like bothered by chunky, uh, overflowing, long-forgotten-about-filing cabinets again. Scrivener was created by writers for writers. The lead developer had the idea for the app when he couldn't find the right software to help him out with his own novel writing, so he built the software. Now, it won't write for you, but it will give you everything that you need to start writing and then keep you going. Everything's so easy, there's almost not an excuse to give up while you're using it. I really think it's just the thing that we need right now when we're spending so much time stuck at home. If you've got an idea for that book that you really want to get down, you think this is the perfect opportunity, I really think Scrivener will help you out with that. It's a brilliant writing software 
and you can save 20% on it on the brand new Scrivener 3. Just use Routine when you check out, R-O-U-T-I-N-E. Use that when you check out at literatureandlatte.com, literatureandlatte.com. Use Routine to get 20% off Scrivener. Right, before we become like Mark Maron and do about 20 minutes of solid ads, although that would be good for my wallet, but it's not too good to listen to, so let's plough right on. Uh, let's get into it with Lucienne Boyce. Her new novel is Death Makes No Distinction. It's the fourth in her Dan Foster mystery series, all crime stories set in 18th century London about the Bow Street Runners. Now, when I said that, 18th century London, Bow Street, you've already got a picture in your head, haven't you? I bet it involves grime and grit and fog and we'll talk about how Lucienne brings that to life how does she put her own stamp on such an evocative image that we will immediately bring to mind Uh, we also talk about how much she plans her story which is quite a lot actually and why she knows almost every story that Dan will get involved in from here on as well now Lucienne she's written fiction she's written non-fiction as well uh, a history of the suffragette movement and also as I said earlier she's just started work on a biography and we talk about that quite a lot at the start as well I've never chatted to a biographer before so, so that's new and I think it'll be fun for you we also chat about the slippery slope of formula and she gives us some great writing book recommendations as well by the way uh, on those um, I've left them all in the episode notes so wherever, you, wherever you've got this show have a look there and you can find out all about the books that she recommends yourself so let's get into it then with Lucienne Boyce and we start as always with what she sees around her in the place where she sits down to write I have a study which I work in um, and I'm really really lucky so what I mostly see uh, is books I have bookshelves from the floor to the ceiling and I've got a ladder which I just think, I love my ladder, so up to my books, you know, so just had it, well, about a year ago, I had it fitted out with a proper, you know, proper shelving and everything, um, and so I see books, 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 and then I sit at my desk, surrounded by books, and uh, I have pictures in front of me, uh, I have pictures on the walls, um, I can look out of the window and see the birds in the garden, so it's, it's a nice room, I like working in there. Talk me through just a few of the books that you'll find in this mountain of <laughs> shelf are they are they only there for inspiration is this um, they're generally research books so there's a whole bunch of books on the suffrage movement a lot of books on a lot a lot of 18th century books because my novels are set in the 18th century but i also do a lot of work on the women's suffrage movement um they tend to be yeah they're, they're mostly non-fiction and they're mostly research books you've got some pictures what can we see uh, I have a, on the wall, I, I actually sit facing the wall with my back to the door, which when the people were putting the room together, they said, do you not want to face the door? And I said, no, I didn't want to feel part of the house. I like that sense of being away from all, you know, everything that's going on. So, so I look at the wall, but I have some lovely pictures. And I have one that I'm really, really fond of, which is a small uh, litho, uh, I think it's called a woodcut. Yeah, it's a woodcut. And it's of a, a sort of mythical scene of this cloaked figure riding through a forest and it's you can just look at it and think what's the story or you know it's very um so it's things like that which I love and then I've actually got I'm writing a biography at the moment and I have a portrait of the woman whose biography I'm writing uh, to my right so I can look at her she glares at me every now and again and says are you never going to finish this <laughs> book and, you mentioned you're writing a biography there yes. just before we crack on with the with the rest of it and the new yeah. book and, and why we're here how do you find switching your brain between the different genres that you're working? Because you've done a lot of non-fiction, you've done yeah. some stuff, you know, with the suffrage movement in Bristol, you've written historical fiction, biographies. What's that like, switching between um, certain jars to put your finger in? Well, I actually enjoy it because I like the variety. I, I do find, I mean, I have this constant battle with myself about what we laughingly call time management, so we can manage time, but... Um, you know, should I work an hour a day on some, uh, you know, an hour, do an hour on this, an hour on that, an hour on that, and then that's too bitty. So should I say, right, Monday to Wednesday, I write my biography, Thursday, I write my novel. And I still haven't kind of cracked that. So I tend to just do it by tasks when I'm planning my week. What have I got to do this week? What do I want to do this week? And I find, I don't find making this transition difficult at all. If I've got a whole day in my office, in my room, uh, then actually I'm quite happy to do one thing in the morning, have some lunch, and then start the other project in the afternoon. And I, I like that. 
I like that variety. And I mean, you must remember being at school, going from lesson to lesson. You know, you had to change from maths to French. To, and it's a bit like that, really. So. Do you find there's a consistency in your style? It doesn't matter what mm. what you're writing. There'll always be a common thread of how you work, w- what yeah. style you're using. I expect so, yes. I mean, you've got your own voice, haven't you? Even if you're not, you, you may not be absolutely aware of your own, uh, you know, how you come over to, to readers. But yes, I should think... I should think there's a lot of crossover, yeah. And certainly there's a lot of crossover in themes and in research methods. Uh, yes, yeah, so that there is, I think. How much yeah. do you think about your own voice? Yeah, I, with the, the biography, this is the first biography I've ever written and it's quite a learning curve. And I, this, I've always wanted to write a biography. And one of the things I am experimenting with at the moment is what sort of voice will I use? I mean, you've got that very sort of pontifical expert sounding third person kind of voice haven't you you know so and so did so and so and and it all sounds like you know everything or you've got other biographies where the, the structure's a bit looser the biographer might introduce themselves into the text that like, i found this out or i had this experience when i was doing the research and i'm exp- and because i'm at the stage of really the very rough first draft I'm experimenting at the moment with the biography of different ways of writing in different ways into it and I think with biography as well, I think you've got to decide how you... I mean, it's quite a challenge how you tell a life. Do I do a straightforward cradle to grave, which some people find a bit boring nowadays? Or, do you, do you, you know, do you use novelistic skills? I mean, that's something I've experimented with, kind of picking something out of the subject's life and writing it as if I'm writing it as a novel. So I'm playing around with that at the minute. So the jury's still out on that one. There are quite a few gimmicks that are quite prevalent now in biography mm. there was the the one about princess margaret which was ma'am darling which was very gimmicky it was just short oh, yeah. short snippets throughout her yeah. life yeah and um, what are you settling on at the moment for it then where do you think you'll go i know you're in first draft it, well in first draft i think i'm basically splurging everything down and aware that a lot of it's going to have to go because there's you know there's a challenge of how much detail do you put in and what are you trying to what are you, sort of story are you trying to tell about the person i mean that idea of scenes from a person's life or themes from a person's life you know that's one way of looking at it or do you try and find some overarching uh, line running through a person's life you know so yeah I think I'm still very much experimenting with it I'm gonna just focus one more on the biography just before we get Mm. on when you've decided that you are writing this biography on someone that you're obviously interested in Mm. where do you even begin in terms of doing the research? Uh, well, I had come across this person. Um, she was a suffrage campaigner. And when I wrote the book about the Bristol suffragettes, I came across her uh, her name and, and I got sort of interested in her. Um, she married, she didn't, she wasn't uh, from Bristol, but she married a man from Bristol and he was a conscientious objector uh, during the First World War. So their, their politics and their interests appealed to me. You know, their kind of ethics and their ideologies appealed to me. And I sort of stashed it away for many years. And then when I was thinking I would like to write a biography, um, I, I, I tried, I did look at a couple of people, actually. There's another woman I looked at who was a very worthy woman, but I sort of thought, mm, not very exciting stuff going worthy, though she was. Um, and we all owe a lot to her in Bristol. But, yeah, and I, it didn't appeal in the same way. So, yeah, sort of. so I'd come across her. I thought, should I do a famous person? Um, and I think that would probably have been Emily Pethick Lawrence, who was born in Bristol, who led the Women's Social and Political Union, uh, was one of the leaders, um, the militant suffragettes. Um, but I kind of, I, I'm much more interested in history from the ground up, really. And I thought, I don't want to do one of the big names. So the woman I'm doing is not that well known. The woman whose life I'm looking at is not that well known. Where does this tie to Bristol come for you? You, you live yeah. in Bristol. I, I live in Bristol, yes. But I, I live in London. I'm, I'm not <laughs> going to devote so much of my time to researching <laughs> people that are here. Uh, well, it's a shame. There's some great things going on in London. Um, I just, I love, I love Bristol. It's a really vibrant city. There's a lot going on. It's great for, it's great for writers. It's great for arts. But I also, I'm really, really interested in place and history. And one of the the, the really the main way I got into say writing about the Bristol suffragettes was 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 first of all making the discovery that there had been a campaign there because you know many years ago um, suffrage history was it was very London centric uh, it was also 
very mostly ignored, you know, by by patriarchal historians, male historians. And so there were a lot of stories to tell, and there was a lot of there's still a lot of information being found all the time. More women we're discovering about more politics we're learning about and the simple narratives of you know militants non-militants is is exploded really that's perhaps a bit unfortunate phrase when you're talking about militants but there you go um so yeah and and i just i just love i just would walk around and think oh they were on this street or oh they did something here and i love that link between you know when you're walking around for me, history's just there. I mean, history here, it's here, behind all these buildings, the old buildings that have gone, they're still there as a sort of ghost presence. I love that, about London in particular, which has that, for me, that wonderful sense of, of like a palimpsest, things are written on the old parts, you know, on the old parts of the city. Because the, the fiction is set, a lot of the fiction set in London, so I enjoy that a lot. I usually start the day with reading while I'm having breakfast, so I will pick a book that's to do with my research. Uh, at the moment, I'm reading quite a lot about Wales because the next novel is going to be set in North Wales. So I'll sit and munch my toast and drink my coffee while I'm reading, and then I'll kind of uh, start work at my desk probably by about 10 o'clock, um, and I'll just I'll start writing, uh, and I'll try and put some time by for admin because there's always that boring admin stuff to do. I mean, a lot does depend. You know, your day isn't always exactly the same. But the ideal day is if you get to your desk, maybe do a couple of little jobs that you can just get out of the way and then start the writing uh, and just carry on from there. And what I generally do when I'm writing is, is sort of just pick up from where I left yesterday or the last session. And I, I often try and leave things... Um, I don't write words a day and I don't write hours a day. I write in scenes because I kind of see what's happening and I try and finish a scene or a part of a scene and then I, I see where I want to pick it up the next time I'm working. So, yeah, I'll just be sitting. It's not very exciting, actually, talking about writer's routines. I'll just sit at my desk and write, you know. I might get up every now and again and pull a book off the shelf to look something up, which is the most excitement you what, might get, you know. But What time do you tend to finish? Uh, usually, well, the actual, I find with writing, um, probably three hours is your optimum concentration time, you know, for the actual, and sometimes less than that. I mean, it's, I'm not, I'm not one of these, oh, my muse has got to be with me. I don't believe in any of that old stuff, but you know, there is a point at which you feel, well, that's as much as I can do today, or I need to look something up, so I'll finish here. Uh, But I'd probably finish actually working probably around five o'clock because then I'll, I'll probably find other things to do, things to look up, or, you know, uh, maybe that last bit of admin at the end of the day. But, yeah. That's when you've stopped working at your desk. Are mm. you then able to completely switch off from your stories for oh, the rest? No. Of- <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, I don't... I mean, I, I like to have relaxed evenings, and I do I do tend to kind of want to, you know, cook. I like cooking, so I like to make a nice supper, a nice glass of wine, maybe watch a bit of totally ridiculous television, and just wind down. But I will be thinking. A lot of the time you're still thinking. I have notebooks jotted around and, uh, you know, dotted around. And you sometimes, oh, I must write that down. I must write that down. And you do that. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know, really. I don't feel, oh, I must cut off from it. I don't ever feel that. Anything else in your day? Mm. A, a peculiarity, a, a quirk, something that keeps you working? I know you've got your three hours, three hours on, well, maybe coming back. Yeah, to... it's not a rule. It's just, you but know. Have you got... Perhaps when you think, no, I need to carry on working now, is mm. there something that, that does help you carry on? A bit of music in the background, a coffee oh, yeah, at yeah. a certain time? Uh, I don't, I like silence. Um, I, I like um, peace and quiet, so I don't play music. Uh, I don't answer the phone. I don't, I try and avoid all that sort of distraction. Um, what would, yeah, if I was thinking, uh, I'd probably make a cup of tea. Yeah, make a cup of tea and then sit down again. Maybe a square of chocolate because, you know, chocolate really does help. So We've spoken about you compartmentalising things. Do you, do you, are you a disciplined writer, do you think? Yes, I think I am, yeah. Where does that yeah. come from? Is that just through tuition? Have you taught that yourself? Uh, yes, I suppose tuition and experience. And I mean, I have read and still continue to read lots of books on, on the skill and the craft of writing. There's always, you know, plenty to learn from other people, which is part of the excitement of it, really. Um, but yeah, I just guess I've always been able to sort of just sit down and, and I do, I do, I do plan. I mean, I do a lot of, I plan my 
my my working day I plan my week so every morning I will think right what do I want to do today and I'll write a list and every week I'm thinking what do I what am I going to try and do this week so I try and so I have that sort of to look at to keep me going it's very rare that I think oh I don't really know what to do because it's all there in front of me what I want to do that very quickly I can't let up you mentioned (laughs) you uh reading a lot of books on the art Mm. and the craft of writing Sorry to put you on the spot, but have you got any keen recommendations for oh, us now? absolutely. I mean, because I do occasionally do um, workshops <coughs> for other historical fiction writers, which I enjoy doing, and I do recommend certain books. One of my favourites, not so much on the skill and the craft of writing, but on the creative process, is The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. I think she's absolutely wonderful. A little bit American apple pie sometimes, but if you can get her, yeah, you know, you have to get over all those mom stories. But I, I love her work. And she talks about how creativity is a, is a spiritual issue. It's about, you know, tapping into sort of, um, I suppose, inner things. I don't know quite what the right wording would be. Uh, I think her books are wonderful. I find them very helpful. In terms of the nuts and bolts, the skills and crafts, I've just read, actually, Emma Darwin's book, um, which I think is, yes, it's one of the Teach Yourself series of books on historical fiction. I thought it's absolutely smashing. So I, I think that's one I'm going to start recommending to people as well. Yeah. And then, the, the, I, I can't remember the author's name, but there's, for the kind of fiction... I write historical mysteries. There's a book called How to Write Killer Historical Mysteries, and I can't remember the author's name. I'm terribly sorry to her, um, but that's another very good book. For the fiction, I do do a lot of research, but I don't worry too much about, oh, I must use primary sources. I'm quite happy to rely on a on a good history book, an academic website, essays, things like that. Um, I don't feel that oh, I've got to spend hours sitting in an archive researching you know, what they would have used to dry clean their clothes in London in the 18th century. I can tell you if you like, but I'm not going to bore you. But, um, yeah, but for the for the non-fiction, it's very different. So much more time is spent in archives, much more time. Uh, and the non-fiction is more of a um, detective thing that you're doing. It, it's You're looking for something with the fiction. You know, you've, you've got your... St- you're responsible for the story. You're responsible for the characters. But the non-fiction, I'm, I'm looking for information. And there's things I can't find about this woman, about her life. And that's actually part of what I want to write about. You know, the recording of lives, the telling of lives. But, but it's, 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 an, it's, um, it's an investigation. And you know that kind of... I don't know if you ever do any research, but you know that kind of embarrassing moment when you're in an archive and you're looking for something, you see it, you find what you're looking for, and you want to jump up and shout, yay! And everyone's working really hard, and you know that if you do... But we all do it. We all want to do it. You can see other people go... And you know they're having the same kind of feeling. It's, it's really interesting. So it's different in that it is an investigation. When you're writing fiction, mm. historical fiction, we'll speak more about the new Dan Foster book in just mm. a bit. But how important is it for you that all the details are correct in the world that they are living in? I know that you've mm. said you don't mind if perhaps it's not the, the, it's not a primary source, but how important is it for you that the streets that Dan is walking, the things that he is using aren't at all anachronistic? Oh, well, it's very important, and I do do a lot of research, but I think, I think there is... I often think some people get a little bit carried away by this idea of historical fiction and accuracy there is i don't believe there's any such thing we don't know everything that happened all historical records are based on somebody's point of view they're told by somebody they're written down by somebody they may or may not happen to survive you know everything is seen through someone's eyes everything's got an agenda everything's you know you've got to interpret it really so when it comes to sort of this, as though accuracy is some kind of shibboleth, oh, you've got to be accurate. Well, sometimes I just think that's a very simplistic way of looking at it. But in terms of the sort of things like, I mean, I wouldn't have him pull a revolver out of his pocket, for example, um, which I've just read an interesting article about um, people who get revolvers confused with pistols. And I'm not brilliant on guns, to be honest. So Nor should you be, I don't no, think. Well, I don't think I want to be, <laughs> no. <laughs> but I mean, he's, he does, this character will use a gun because he's a, 18th century police officer so he will use a gun but um yeah so you know you want to get those things right but it's more to do with for me it's more to do with the craft because if you get it wrong what you do is spoil the story 
you pull the reader out. So if you have a character who suddenly says something like, well, okay, just, hello, no, that's just not, you know, the reader will think, whoa, no, where am I? Suddenly I'm not in the 18th century. Um, and I think it's, it's more, for me, about getting it, I do really, I do such a lot of research and it really is important to me and no one likes to be caught out in a mistake either. But, you know, I, I can't be doing with the sort of people who, you know, sometimes you say, oh my goodness, you know, someone's written this really fantastic book, but I couldn't finish it because they've got the number of the bus going to the Elephant Castle wrong. And I'm thinking, well, oh, that's rather harsh, you know. And I, so I don't worry, I, I don't want to sound careless and slapdash about it, but... Um, I think it's a big issue, to be honest. I think the, the idea of accuracy in historical fiction is a very big issue. There's a lot involved with it. So I do as much research as I can. I get as much right as I can. Um, but, you know, yeah. But but for me, it is about that's the world I want to create. I suppose you, you said, you know, it's about that world, getting people in that world. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Before we get back into it with Lucienne, listen, I know it's a strange, tough time right now, uh, but if you would like to feel good for helping someone out, then by all means. I'd love for you to feel good for helping us out. Uh, I would certainly feel very good. Uh, you can pledge to support the show over on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash writers routine. You see, this is our 100th episode. Uh, I think so anyway. I know I've talked about this for like the last few episodes that we were coming up to 100, but I think this is it. This is the ton, the century. If you've learned anything in all of the shows that we've done so far... Um, at all. If just one tip has revolutionised the way that you tell your stories, um, please do fire over a dollar or so a month. Uh, Send it to our Patreon. You get little bits of merch as well from us to say thank you for doing that. And I promise it really goes a long way. Uh, It really helps us keep ticking over during this very, very weird moment and helps us keep bringing you these episodes as frequently as we can with all the best writers that we can get our hands on. That sounded stranger than I meant it to. What I do mean to say is if you would like to help us out, please do it uh, over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Let's get back into it then with Lucienne Boyce chatting about her brand new novel, Death Makes No Distinction. It's the fourth in the Dan Foster mystery series where he investigates the murder of Louise Parmenter. And actually on the murder... We talk about that a little bit in this part. How much thought does she give to the type of death the victim will, well, I I guess, fall to? Um, Also, we talk about how much she plans and how that affects what her characters do autonomously, if that's even possible with a character from your head. And we pick things up with more on historical fiction, the idea of it. Uh, What draws Lucienne to it so much? For me, what's really wonderful about it is that it, it's 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 about the present as well. I mean, it's about the present. I I went to a wonderful talk, um, I think three or four years ago. Um, I don't know if you've heard of it, but there's a very good project by one of the London universities. I think it's UCL, and they've put together a, a database of slaves. You know, and the slaves the slaves were allegedly freed, um, and of course, what happened was their masters were paid 
compensation. But slaves got nothing. The ex-slaves got nothing. I hate the word slave, actually. I don't think we should talk about human beings as slaves. To me, they are kidnapped, stolen people who've been, you know, put into forced labour. But, yeah. It's is, that not word, the word, is that not what the word slave means? To me, it just feels a little, like, perhaps it's a bit precious. But there are times I use the word and feel quite uncomfortable, like it's a bit belittling in a way, you know. And also, any, I don't know, anyway, it's a bit... Um, so I don't know what... Yeah, but you're right. I mean, that is the word we use, but I, I dislike it very much sometimes. But anyway, this is Fantastic Tage Base, and I went to a talk. Um, it's a great resource. Um, and I went to talk about... Uh, by one of the women who runs this database, and she talked about how the past disfigures the present. And I thought this was such a wonderful phrase and so true, you know. And I think that, for me, that's what historical fiction is about. It's about thinking about, you know, the... the it's it's not finished it's not finished and the things so the themes i write about in my books i mean saying the first dan foster mystery which is set around enclosures we are still struggling to sort out how land should be owned how land should be used and people are still suffering from forced enclosure from forced forest clearance that sort of thing it's not finished you know so i I think for me it's that for historical fiction that connection between the past and the present We've spoken a lot about what everyone else has done, so let, let's actually move on to what you have done. Uh, the new one is Death Makes No Distinction. Mm. Talk me through the very first moment that the idea for this story came into your head. Uh, oh, gosh, yes. Well, it's it sort of... This, a lot of the stories sort of come out of... It's funny with research, actually. You can be doing research and you come across something and think, oh, that's a good idea, and you sort of squirrel it away. Um, and I suppose... A lot of it came out of of the idea of... I wanted to write very much about the the divide between rich and poor, the gulf between rich and poor, which obviously is getting much wider again now as well. And so that's partly why that was an important theme. In the 18th century, of course, it was massive. Um, And it was thinking of ways to do that. And I I knew about the history of um, a woman called Hannah Moore. She's a Bristol poet. And she took... She became a patron to another Bristol poet called Anna Yearsley. And Anna was a working class woman, very little education. And Hannah was uh, um, more upper middle, I suppose, although that's anachronistic use of terms, which, you know, she was a lot richer. She'd had a decent education as far as women could. And she patronised Anne, but she also tried to control her. And um, then they had a big falling out, a big row. And it was all about, for me, it was all about the the difference in status between them. And so that story became a kind of part of that that Dan Foster novel. So you've got the blue stocking character and she's done a similar thing. She's, She's picked up, you know, a poorer poet. It was quite a craze in the 18th century. Everyone liked to have a pet poor poet. You know, it was all very patronising. But um, so that's that was where the sort of initial germ for this. I thought, well, that's that's a good way of thinking about the rich and poor thing, the status, the difference. You know, in in what people have got access to. And then what comes next? As you've already said, you're a thorough yeah. researcher. <laughs> yeah. Before you sit there day one to get your story down on paper, where do you begin your research? How much do you know about what this novel will be? Well, I plot. Um, I am a plotter, um, and I I have the the whole story worked out, but not in every detail because I like to. I need the, you need the space, you know, to fill it in. So I will know how I want the book to end, but I might not know exactly how I'm going to get there. So I know that, and that then guides the research to some extent. Because, for example, if I think right, so in this scene, Dan's got to, I don't know he's got to walk into a a tavern in in Holborn. Okay, so what tavern could he walk into? So that teaches him that's something I need to research. But then there's the sort of so, the whole social history. I mean, the thing is, I've been reading and studying the 18th century for many years now. I did an MA in um, 18th in literature, and I specialise in 18th century English literature. Um, so right from you know back then, so I do have a lot of knowledge already, just from that kind of just and just because I'm interested in it. Um, so I know the story and then I'll sort of research what I need to research to start the story but a lot of the detail I won't research until finished it because you can spend hours getting sidetracked and then delete that scene 
You know, you can have a scene, you think, right, he's going to walk into the room, he's going to light the candle, how's he going to light the candle? Oh my goodness, how do you use a flint box? You know, and then you suddenly think, oh, well, I'm going to take that scene out anyway. So, so things like that, that very nitty gritty detail, I will leave until I'm sure I need that scene. For those major plot points, how mm. are you figuring out what they are before you've even started writing? When I mm. began interviewing authors for the show, I assumed the majority of them would be quite hardline plotters mm. to a degree as you are. But since doing it, I've quite a lot mm. of the ones I've chatted to recently anyway. Yeah, uh, I uh, noticed. A, a full-on pantsers, you know. Yeah, they yeah. will figure out who the murderer is when they open the door. Yeah. And having discussed that with them, that almost makes more sense to me because they are discovering the mm. the, the story as their brain is, is thinking it up. How do you discover the, what the story is before you've even started to write it? How do you know how it's going to end? How do you know where the middle is going to be? Uh, I mean, I, I work it out. I sort of think, right, I, I know... I mean, you'll start. Sometimes you start with this. For me, when I write a book, it's often a scene, and you know that whatever the book is going to be about, that is a crucial scene. Everything somehow revolves around that scene. And it could be the opening scene, it often is. The discovery of the body, for example, is good. Where do you go from there? So that's obviously a crucial scene that you're going to use in the story sometimes it's the end i know there's the mood i want there's the tone i want i want this mood i want my character to be in this mood at the end of the book so what's going to happen to him or her to bring that about so it kind of i just i just um it's really hard to explain i i i use something called the snowflake method and I can, i'm again i'm sorry i cannot remember the name of the man who's invented it but i find something like that very useful if you're a pantser you will hate this but um it's basically you sit down and you look at the story structure and you think this all sounds very glib but it's actually very useful i think so you can say well a story is a number of crises the story has a structure i don't know if you've ever read a book you know there's a book called story by robert mcgee and he talks about this kind of thing as well so being aware of how a story is structured and how a story works or trying to be, um, helps with your plotting. So you think, well, what's the crisis? What's the first crisis going to be? So in, the, in this first, in this death make no distinction, the first crisis is, yes, something happens, but it's, it's it, or some people call it the catalyst. What's the catalyst? He's going to be sent out of, um, oh, I'm thinking of the next book, sorry. So in the next book, what's the catalyst? He's going to be, he's going to be sent out of London to do something. So that, you're working to that. That's the first peak in the story. So you think about where the peaks are. This is how I do it. And how do we get to those? So that's how I do it. Sometimes the story, you know, the story does just sometimes come to you. I mean, I know I want him to go there. I know I want him to do this. I know I want him to see this. I know there are things that are going to happen. It's really hard to explain. Um, I just never thought about it in this way because I suppose it just comes reasonably naturally to me now. Um, It's an art. I mean, as we talk about skill and craft, but it is also an art. Um, and I'm not sure people like you to use highfalutin phrases like that. I'm not really sure. But, um, yeah, it, I, th- I think there's this kind of idea that if you do plot, it's suddenly very rigid um, and that you've got to just work through it. Like I mentioned a list earlier. Oh, this scene, this is... It's not, for me, it's not like that at all. You can change I mean, I changed the murder halfway through. Death makes no distinction. I suddenly thought, oh, no. So, you know, you change, but just have that framework to start with. Um, for me, works really well. Well, tell me why you, you went. I changed the murder halfway through. Oh well. Well, what what <laughs> what was the spark, the tipping point? It's that too made obvious. You... I thought it was too obvious. So you know, if you're writing a murder mystery, you are trying to surprise your readers a little bit. Unless you're writing the kind of book where we know from the start who it is, and there's perhaps a more psychological approach to why they did it or how they did it. You know, that and get the Christie thing. They're often how done it, aren't they? The locked room type mystery, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, yeah, so... So how did you discover then who it was? Well, I decided who else it was. I, I start off, okay, I do this. I'll say, right, here's the murder. So I've got my murder. There's usually a murder, after all. And I think, who are the suspects? Who are the possible suspects? So I would approach it like the, the way... See, one of the ways I, I'm trying to write these books, and I hope I'm achieving it, is I want the, the narrative to be seen through Dan's eyes so that we're learning it through through his eyes. Although it's written in the third person, it's usually his point of view. I don't tend to write, to suddenly switch into another character's point of view very often. So it's, it's him learning as he goes along. So we're learning with him. So what would he do face with this? Well, he'd make a list of suspects, wouldn't he? And so I do that. 
And then I look at that and I think, oh, is it going to be more likely it's going to be? So I do it like that. Does that make any sense? <laughs> it absolutely makes sense. But what about red herrings? What about twists? Oh, yes, you've got your red herrings. Yes, I mean, you've got suspects who aren't going to turn out to be the person. I mean, that's your classic red herring, isn't it? You have five suspects, so it's only one murderer. Or, of course, unless you're doing that wonderful um, Orient Express type story. Is it the Orient Express? Yeah, but yeah. they're all the better. Spoiler. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, spoiler alert there, guys. <laughs> but for someone that clearly studies the craft of writing so much and you're in a series, mm. um, I'll, I'll say the word formula. I don't mean formula in negative connotations. Mm. What I mean is when you were talking about red herrings and you say, right, well, there's going to be five people, do you have a, a set way of telling your stories in that, right, there's a murder, I know there needs to be this many fake murderers one of a better mm. word yeah. <laughs> um, and the twists need to come at this point no because I don't want to write formulaically I mean that's the thing I, I do want each story to feel a bit different so um yeah it's this tricky one isn't it but I mean there's always going to be more than one suspect in a murder case because nobody well in this sort of story anyway, because unless you find someone standing over someone with a dripping knife saying, I'm glad I killed them, you know, it's often very difficult to know who it was. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think. Um, no, but I, I don't want to be formulaic, but I suppose there are, there are formulae and there are, there are um, methods that you use. There are uh, what's the word? Conventions, aren't there? I guess what I'm story. asking is, are you, when you when you need to have a red herring, when you need yes. to have a twist, how forced is your idea is your idea generation for for those moments? Well, I think a lot of it is because it's coming th- well because hopefully it's coming through the character's eyes. If it's, it's something that Dan doesn't know, that's that's why it's there's suspense. He doesn't know it. He doesn't know everything, so he's got to go to places and then he has adventures when he's there. So he'll. You know, man walks into bar, gets beaten up kind of in the, in the butcher's block. He has to go somewhere. And then you have a whole scene where he's got to to sort of fight his way out. And so you've got these sorts of things going on as well, uh, which is part of the atmosphere and the story. Um, but no, I don't, I don't want to write in that formulaic... I don't think there's anything wrong with formula. I don't know if you watch things like Midsummer Murders. I mean, some of the early ones, they're very formulaic. But actually, it works, and they're actually quite good storytelling. Some of them, um, but I don't want to write in that particular way myself. I love language. I collect words. I mean, I really do. I love language, and one of the things I really, really am interested in is is, is not private languages as such, but specific languages. So, for example, um, nautical language, especially in the eighteenth century. You know, I think if you'd say were a non-mariner and you walked into a bar and there were a group of sailors, you wouldn't understand a thing they were saying. And then you have cant, you know, thieves cant, uh, which is which is great, uh, which is another whole language devised by um, ne'er-do-wells, you know, deliberately so that respectable people couldn't understand what they were saying. Um, so you've got these, these different sort of language systems, which I, I'm really fascinated by. But I think in practice in a story, you can't use them too much. So you're just trying to convey, uh, you know, a sense of them, a sense of the sort of language. So I, I like to use some 18th century words and phrases. Um, but, you've, but I think in historical fiction, for me, it's also very important to avoid what we call gadzookery. Which is, you know, where you know, man walks into bar and goes, "Zounds, you, you varlets!" And it, you know, no, really, it's just not going to work. And, and I don't think anyone ever really spoke like that either. It's probably in a play or something. So it's kind of trying to get a balance and using the language uh, in that way. So you're giving a flavour of the language of the era because that's part of avoiding anachronism of creating atmosphere. So I wouldn't have, like I mentioned earlier, I wouldn't have a character say, "Oh, okay." You know, but I'm, I know other writers, other historical fiction writers, who do use quite modern language on the grounds that they, you know, the people at the time didn't think of themselves as using archaic language, and that can work too. It depends what kind of story you want to write, but so, so it's trying to get a balance between using language in that way, um, but not, you know, straying to the gadzookery area. Let's talk about the first and last of, of your story. How much? 
if you've done all this research beforehand, mm. before you've even started typing your actual first page, how much thought are you giving to the first line? Oh, gosh, I suppose quite a lot. But often, I mean, you use the word mystical, so I'm going to have to confess it. Often it just comes into my head. I just think, that's it. That's the first line. That's where it's going to be. That's the first scene. So, yeah, sometimes, you know, it does. But but I, I think this idea of things popping into one's head, things only pop into your head if you've done the work, you know. If you've done the groundwork, if you've done a lot of thinking and reading and let it sort of swill around for a bit or gestate or whatever, and, and then it will come. You know, it's like that thing where if you've got a, say you've got a plot problem, you suddenly hit a wall and you think, oh, oh gosh, this is not working. I really don't know what to write next because I've got into a bit of a hole here. And you go to bed and then you get up the next day and it's there, the answer's there because it's working all the time. But you have to put yourself in that situation for those moments of inspiration to come, what we call inspiration. Last line then. Ah, last line, that's often the same. Perhaps not the last line, but how do you know it's finishing? Well, partly because I've plotted it, so I know I've got to the end of the story, um, and I've tried to structure it so that it is a story with a you know a beginning, middle, and end, and all that sort of thing, and uh, a few crises along the way. Uh, but also because um, I, I do have an overarching plot for the main character, for the Dan Foster character's life, and so I'm also trying to think about how has this novel moved him on a bit to the next phase in his own life. So that that's also got to be an end point as well. But yeah. So, what about the actual last line then? You said that that was almost as hard. Some, well, what I've got into a bit of a habit, and I don't know if I'm going to continue with it, but I've got into a bit of a habit of ending the Dan Foster ones with, with the words Bow Street or, or them being close to the end. So he'll turn away and say, I'm going back to Bow Street now, or he's on his way back to Bow Street. And I, I quite like that because I, I quite like the idea of he's done that case, he's finished that, and then he's kind of sometimes wearily, sometimes quite happily because he doesn't want to go home going back to Bow Street so I don't I don't know if I'm going to continue that but it's come a bit of a habit in these first three books you're someone that spreads your time as we've spoken about already across many different forms of writing mm. how do you decide what's coming next why why, why do you sit there and think right I need to get crack out the fifth Dan Foster book now <laughs> I don't think I can crack out anything I'm, I wish I could write faster sometimes but um, I'm, I'm afraid to say I also plotted the series so I had the idea for each book now all, all set down although I have had another one that I might throw in as well um, but yeah so I, I know basically what I want the story to be but it but you know saying that sometimes it's just a sentence I think right in the next story I think I know I want him to go to Wales why because I love Wales and it's going to be such a great place for a murder and then there's going to be all the tensions around, you know, that kind of Anglo-Welsh relations and the colonialism issue and the language issue. So I know those are the things that interest me about the next story. Here's my last question. Mm. Murder stories are ten a penny. <laughs> yeah. How, how much thought are you giving to your actual murder, the, 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 the physical killing in the story and, and mm. trying to make it different from what's been before? Well, I don't know if I am really trying to make it very different. I mean, I, I do get a little bit fed up with, um, well, I'm going to say Scandi-Noir sometimes, which sometimes just seems to revolve around what's the most gruesome method I can think of for getting rid of someone. And I think blech, partly because it is often very gruesome, but also it just seems, you know, I don't I don't know. I don't, so I don't think, oh, gosh, do I need a really unusual murder? I think, you know, if you can find one and it works, great. I'm not, I'm not saying anything I say is a general rule. All writers are different and stories work in so many different ways, which is one of the wonders of them. But for me, I don't think, oh, what's the, you know, what's the most gruesome murder or what's an unusual murder? I mean, the murder in Death Makes No Distinction is, is actually quite, it's one of those what-was-to-hand kind of murders. Um, so... I, I don't, um, I suppose the murder has to fit the setting really, doesn't it? And, and the surroundings. Now, I mean, in the 18th century, there was an awful lot of violence. Um, of course, there was a lot of judicial violence because we had a, a, what was called the bloody code. So the death sentence being meted out for, you know, over 200 offences. So you've got an atmosphere of terrific violence, terrific um, contempt for life in many ways, um, especially you know, the life of poor people. 
Um, so I don't think you need to really add much to that. I mean, I think that's quite enough in a way, um, you know, that there is this atmosphere of violence. That I mean, even the character Dan, I mean, I didn't, I didn't um, want, that, want the idea of someone who's terribly gung-ho, but he's a boxer, he's a pugilist, he's a bare-knuckle fighter. And a lot of people say to me, you know, why is he that, especially because you hate sport, you don't particularly like boxing, why have you made him like that? But the fact is that a, a man would have had to defend himself. And uh, and that's his way of doing it. And there are lots of other cultural reasons why boxing was considered to be a good thing to do. He sees it as a way out of a, a poor background. So you've got to think about the way the violence fits into the society and the setting as well, I think. So for me, thinking of, oh, you know, some wacky murder mystery, it, it doesn't work for me. Also, I'm not a pathologist. So I, I mean, I'm in awe of people who do know an awful lot about, um, you know, about pathology and how to destroy the human body i suppose am i in awe of them but if if people can if they have that knowledge and can make it work that's great but for me it's not really what it's about and that is it for this week's writer's routine thank you so much to lucienne boyce for coming on telling us all about her brand new dan foster mystery the fourth in the series it's called death makes no distinction you can find out more about it over at writersroutine.com uh, you can also learn about the books that she recommended throughout the show uh, in the episode notes for the podcast, however you're listening to us. If the chat has given you anything to think about that you would like to pass on, uh, you can do that. Use the contact form. Get in touch over at writersroutine.com as well. Also, please do support us if you can uh, at patreon.com forward slash writersroutine. If you can't, uh, but you'd still like to say thanks for a 100 episodes with some of the best authors around, please do leave us a review over on the Apple Podcast Store. Now, next week, uh, we're chatting to Russ Thomas all about his debut crime thriller, Firewatching. That is next week on Writer's Routine. Stay safe, stay indoors. I will see you then. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.